Whenever there is turmoil in the world, especially in the Middle East, one of the questions that people often ask is, are we living in the last days? And the answer to that question is simple, but not for the reasons you might think. When people ask the question, often what they're really wondering is, is the current crisis a fulfillment of prophecy that indicates we are now closer to the events of the end times. Now that is not as easy to answer because the prophecies surrounding the return of Christ and the events that are going to take place are very complex and uh, Christians interpret many of those in different ways uh, and understand them in different ways. So that's a very difficult question in one sense, but the question, are we living in the last days, that's a simple one. And the answer is yes, without a doubt. And we have been ever since the time of Christ. The New Testament is crystal clear about this across the board. So for example, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, right out of the gate, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we are in the last days, Hebrews says, and we have been ever since God sent his son in person to speak to us. James, likewise, says to Christians in his own day, in James chapter 5, he says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. He's rebuking uh, some of the the rich in uh, the church, the congregation he's writing to, and he says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's not something James is telling uh, to people that are going to live hundreds and thousands of years after he's writing. He's telling that to people who are alive with him in the first century. This is what you're doing in the last days because we are living in the last days. And we're going to see again in Acts chapter 2 that Peter is going to make the same point, that we are now living in the last days. And he says that right after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So, are we living in the last days? Yes. No doubt we are. If that is the case, then, there are two questions we can ask. What makes this the last days? And what does that mean for us? What difference does that make? How does that affect our lives and the way we see the world? Let's look to Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 21 this morning. This is uh, one of those passages where if I thought my voice would hold out and your attention would hold out, I would love to preach like the entire chapter because the, the whole thing is one great event. But I know my voice is not going to hold out, and so you don't have to worry about whether your attention will. We're going we're gonna to focus on just the first 21 verses this morning. It will take probably uh, several weeks to work through this chapter. But we'll start this morning with the first 
section, and this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Now, before we understand the uh, significance of this event, we need to understand the event itself. What is happening? What is Luke telling us occurred on the day of Pentecost? Well, first of all, it's helpful to know what Pentecost is. Pentecost is one of the three major feasts on Israel's calendar. You can read about it in the Old Testament for example, uh, in Le- uh, excuse me, Leviticus 23, it says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. This is talking about Pentecost. It's called Pentecost because it happens 50 days after Passover, right? So Penta, right? You get five. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. It's also called the Feast of Weeks because it happens um, seven weeks or seven sevens uh, after 
Passover, right? So Jesus, remember, died at Passover. He rose on the third day. He was with his disciples for another 40 days, for 40 days after his resurrection, teaching them. And then he said, wait until you receive the promise of the Spirit, not many days from now, right? And so that gets us to 50 days, which is when the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. So Pentecost, it was not, is not something that happened only once, right? It's a feast that Israel observed annually, but usually now, since this event, when we talk about Pentecost, we're talking about the one time on Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out. So what happened on this particular Pentecost, uh, he says uh, in verse 1, they were all together in one place. He's talking about those 120, most likely, that he mentioned in chapter 1 that were gathered together. They were praying, they were waiting, as Jesus instructed them to, in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit. And he had told them, back in chapter 1, to wait for this promise. And the promise they were waiting for was when they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said would happen. In not many days from now, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we read in verse 4, right, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, later, it's going to talk about the Spirit being poured out, right? And so all of this language overlaps, right? It's all talking about the same event where they were baptized in the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was poured out upon them. Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, uh, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. So it's interesting that uh, scripture often uses immersive and personal language about the Holy Spirit. It does talk about, as we sang this morning, uh, about the Spirit being the breath of God, Jesus breathing on his disciples in John and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. But it also uses language even more immersive than that. It's not external, but it's, it's washing over you, a pouring out of the Spirit. You're being immersed in the Spirit, right? You're being baptized. That's what baptism means. You're being immersed in something. You're immersed in the Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that the Spirit would come to dwell inside of them. He talks about us being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is not like the Holy Spirit is just kind of going to barely touch you from over here. This is the Spirit is coming to wash over you, to dwell in you, to fill you up with His presence and then with the fruit that comes from having the Spirit at work within us. This is what is happening on the day of Pentecost in a new and significant way that becomes the norm from this point forward. We'll talk about that more uh, in a little bit. He says, it says that what happened when the Spirit came, they heard this sound like a mighty rushing wind, that the uh, tongue, divided tongues as of fire appeared on their heads, and they began speaking in different languages, languages they had never learned. Right, Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is what baffled the crowd that gathered, right? They heard the commotion. All these people came, and the reason why there's a big crowd of people in Jerusalem is because they're here for the feast. 
People from all over the empire, Jews from all over the Roman Empire who lived in different places, they've come to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Pentecost. And so they hear what's going on. They hear some kind of commotion or they hear the sound or whatever. And they come together and they are baffled by what is going on. Because they're speaking in all these different languages, right? And uh, they say uh, in verse 11, right, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So they're preaching, they're proclaiming the things that God has done in all these different languages. And he lists all the nations that these people have come from, where they speak Different languages, likely, when they lived there. And they came back to Jerusalem, and they're looking at these people, and they're thinking, you guys all live in Galilee, so how in the world do you know how to speak the language that we speak over in wherever, right? In Rome, in Egypt, you guys live right here. You have no reason to speak that language. How is it that these people are speaking all these different languages? And part of what's significant about that is we know where the language barrier comes from. Because Scripture tells us. Back in Genesis chapter 11, everybody spoke one language. And though God had uh, told them to disperse and spread out and fill the earth and multiply and, and whatnot, they tried to gather together, stay together, instead of dispersing like God told them. And they tried to build a tower up into the heavens, right? Uh, It was pride, and it was rebellion. And God came down and looked at their tower, and he said, essentially, if we let them keep speaking the same language, this is only the beginning of the sin that they will get up to together. So he confused their languages, that's why it's called Babel, right? He confused their languages and dispersed them over the earth, and that's when people could no longer communicate as well, right, across these language barriers. What we have in Acts chapter 2 is not a reversal of Babel, because we still have the language barriers, right? But we do have an overcoming of Babel in this moment. If you had told the disciples that morning, before the Spirit came upon them, here's what you're going to do today. You're going to stand up in Jerusalem and you are going to preach to people who don't speak your language. What do you think they would have said? <laughs> Excuse me? How? Why? Well, we don't know those languages. Those people won't be able to understand us. We can't do that. You're asking us to do something that is impossible. They would have probably said something similar to what Moses said. Right, when Moses was called by God to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And remember, what did Moses say? He said, hold on. You don't know who you're talking to. I can't speak well. In Exodus chapter 4, he says, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. But here's what God said. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. In other words, God says to Moses, 
You don't know who you're talking to. I can handle this. I can enable you to speak. I'm the one who made your mouth. It's going to be fine. I'm going to be with you. I will enable you and empower you. And we often do the same thing. We forget when God calls us to do something, we forget who we're talking to. We start making excuses like he doesn't really know us or he doesn't have the ability to make this work. But whatever barriers we think are inside of us or outside of us that will keep us from doing what God has called us to do, God can overcome them. What does God do when he wants a multitude of people to hear what he's been doing who speak languages that aren't commonly spoken in Jerusalem? He sends the Spirit upon his people to enable them to speak in languages they've never learned. Problem solved. Was it a miracle? Yes. Was it hard for God? No. Could the disciples have guessed what was going to happen? Probably not. But God took care of it. God fixed it. We often find ourselves in the same kinds of situations. Looking ahead at something that we feel like God wants us to be a part of and thinking, I don't have any idea how that will work. How that could possibly happen. How you could use me to do something like that. And God says, you don't have to know. I got it figured out. I'll take care of it. You just trust me. It's going to be fine. And it always is. Now, when this happened, as you would expect, something out of the ordinary. Something surprising. People have questions. People want to know what is going on and what does this mean. Right. So you see them ask that question in verse 12. It says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Right? Something this out of the ordinary, something this unexpected, something so unexplainable, it's, it's got to mean something. It's got to be a reason for this. And some of the people, it says in verse 13, they, they just said, well, they're just, these guys are just drunk. That's, that's all it is. They're filled with new wine. Maybe these were the people who, you know, the people who weren't speaking in their languages, Right? Maybe they just sounded like they were speaking garbled whatever, like foreign languages that you've never learned often do. It just sounds like they're babbling something. I can't understand it. And so they thought, well, these guys are just drunk. That's all that this is. But Peter stands up to explain what is really happening and what it means. He's going to answer their question. And that's helpful because we want to know what it means too. What's so significant about this? What is God up to in this moment? Well, Peter stands up, and as he often did right back in the Gospels, right, he becomes the spokesman. He's the one who speaks on behalf of the other disciples. And he says to them, verse 15, these people are not drunk. It's way too early for that. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. right? They're not drunk. Let's just rule that out. That's not what is happening. Here's what is happening, he says. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, what you are witnessing right now, what you are hearing and what you are seeing is a fulfillment of prophecy. A prophecy you're familiar with, a prophecy you have no doubt heard read out in the synagogue time and time again. 
It is being fulfilled right now. And that's what you are witnessing. So what is this prophecy? What does it say is going to happen? Well, Peter says in verse 17, In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, the first thing he says there, when he says, In the last days, it shall be, that's actually not something that Joel says in his prophecy. That's Peter's interpretation and explanation of Joel's prophecy. He's telling us what Joel prophesied was going to happen. It's something that was going to happen in the last days. And we are in the last days. So these are being fulfilled in the last days. And you might say, well, hold on. How? If Joel didn't say that, why is Peter saying that? And can I trust Peter to have gotten this right? You can. And here's two reasons why. Two reasons why it should not trouble you that Peter interprets this prophecy for us. He doesn't just quote it. He also interprets it and tells us this is being fulfilled in the last days. Here's two reasons why. Number one is because Peter was taught to understand the Bible by Jesus himself. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus enabled the disciples to understand the scriptures better than they ever had before. Right? You say, well, well hold on, because like during, during Jesus' ministry, they didn't even always understand what Jesus was saying, much less how what Jesus was doing related to the Old Testament. But after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, here's one of the things that Luke tells us Jesus said and did in Luke 24, 44, and 45. Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The disciples were given a greater, clearer, fuller understanding of Scripture than anybody but Jesus had probably ever had. And we talk about, you know, man, wouldn't it be great to have been there and heard Jesus explain all this stuff? That would be wonderful, right? And I've thought that too. And then somebody said, we do have access to that. Just read Acts. Read the rest of the New Testament. What you have is the disciples telling you what Jesus told them about how the scriptures have been fulfilled in him and his work. That's what Peter's doing here. So you can trust him because Jesus taught him this. Jesus explained this to him. And the second reason you can trust him is because if you go through the whole New Testament and you look at all the times that passages from the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament and explained and interpreted. Here is what you will find over and over and over again. They demonstrate an insightful, faithful interpretation of the Old Testament that is focused on Christ. Again and again and again, you'll find passages where the first time you look at it, you think, what does that have to do with what they're talking about? What does that have to do with Jesus? And then you go back and look, and you realize, oh, they... They really did understand that really well. They, it, it makes sense, but I just, I just didn't see it at first. So it, they've earned our trust, right? They, they demonstrated again and again that their interpretation of the Old Testament is faithful. 
So Peter, so Peter says, look, Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. We're in the last days. This that God said would happen in the future, it's happening now. And the main thing that's happening right now is that God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. What does that mean? What is significant about that? Well, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on every single individual person. Right? But it does mean that the Spirit is being poured out in a way and to an extent that has not happened before. This is not the way things worked in the Old Testament. This is not the way things worked before the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is new. And I love what one Bible teacher said about the significance of the phrase pour out here. He said this, he said, the whole age of the Messiah, right? The, Jesus is the Messiah. The whole time of the Messiah, from his coming until his return, right? Which he, he says, which stretches between the two comings of Christ. That whole time, he says, is the age of the Spirit, in which his ministry is one of abundance. Is not this the significance of the word pour out? The picture is probably of a heavy rainstorm and seems to illustrate the generosity of God's gift of the Spirit. Neither a drizzle nor even a shower, but a downpour. It represents also its finality for what has been poured out cannot be gathered again. And its universality that is widely distributed among different groupings of humankind. So I love that he draws out that language of the Spirit being poured out indicates the abundance of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And the last part he said there about the universality, how, how widely God has distributed this gift of the Spirit, he says. That's what Peter highlights next in Joel's prophecy, right? He says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Joel said. And what's going to happen? Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams. He says, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So it's not going to be like the spirit's just poured out on one guy over here and then one guy over here a little bit later and maybe a couple of people at once. The spirit's going to be poured out on a lot of people. And all different kinds of people. Not just on like a priest or a prophet or a king. It's going to be poured out on young and old men and women. Even on servants, right? Male and female servants. It's it's all kinds of people are going to have the Spirit poured out upon them. And this answers a, a wish or a prayer, right? That Moses expressed in the Old Testament. There was a time when the Spirit... Um, was poured out on the elders of Israel in Numbers chapter 11. And they were around the tent, and the Spirit was poured out upon them. But there were a couple of guys who weren't around the tent. Uh, the tent. They were in the camp. And the Spirit came on them, too. And somebody, you know, carried that news to Moses. Oh, no. These guys who aren't over here with you by the tent, they, they've got the Spirit. They're prophesying, too. They're panicking, right? But Moses does not panic. In fact, he says... Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses says, God, pour out the Holy Spirit on everybody. 
on all your people. I don't want it to just be me. It's not something I'm trying to keep exclusive for myself and my inner circle. I want you to pour out your spirit on everybody. And that's what God is doing. Not on every person in the world, but on every person who calls upon the name of the Lord, God's spirit is poured out. So Peter tells us the pouring out of the Spirit is what they are witnessing. And what that means is that we are living in the days of fulfillment. The days after Jesus has come, but before he has come again. These are the last days. This is good news, right? That we're living in the last days. Those are hard days, but also great days. God is at work like he has always been. But now, the promises he was preparing his people for, he is fulfilling with abundance. That's what the last days are about. Now, finally, uh, Peter quotes uh, a little bit more of the prophet Joel. And he quotes a couple of verses that... Uh, you know, if he had left out, it would have made my job this morning a little bit easier because they're pretty tricky. Um, but it's okay. We'll talk, we'll talk about them briefly. So he says, God's going to pour out his spirit on all these people. They're going to have dreams and visions. They're going to prophesy. And then he says in verse 19 and 20 that there's going to be all these, there's going to be signs. Wonders and signs. Right? Wonders in the heavens, verse 19. Signs on the earth below. And he, he lists them with them. Blood, fire, smoke. Sun turned to darkness, moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So now the question is, did that already happen too? Because Peter's saying the pouring out of the Spirit, that's happening right now. It's being fulfilled right now. So is the rest of that prophecy also being fulfilled right now? Or is that going to be fulfilled later? You can make a case for it already being fulfilled. If you look at the way the event of Jesus' crucifixion is described, there's definitely some overlap there with Joel's prophecy. Because what what happened to the sun when Jesus was on the cross? There's darkness over the land for three hours in the middle of the day. Right? Uh, it even says that you know, that's also when the curtain of the temple was torn into. Uh, there was an earthquake. Right, The earth shook and the rocks were split. So you can make a case for this being uh, something that was already fulfilled recently. But you can also make a pretty strong case for this remaining, this part of the prophecy being in the future still. And part of the reason... Uh, why you can make a strong case for that is because it says this is going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. And if you look at that phrase, the day of the Lord, in the New Testament, it's pretty clearly tied to the return of Christ, which, of course, is still in the future. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it hasn't come yet. It's going to come. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, again, that that part's difficult to say with finality. Did it already happen? Is it going to happen in the future? Is it both? Could be both. right? But what's not difficult to understand or interpret or even apply is verse 21. He says, 
One other thing that's going to happen. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where Peter's whole sermon is headed, right? That's where he's going. People being called to call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. The the Bible is clear that anyone and everyone who calls out to Jesus, who recognizes Him as Lord, who turns from their sin, who trusts in Him, you will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. If you turn to the Lord and call upon Him, He will save you. That also is prophecy from Joel that is being fulfilled right now. This is why Jesus came. So that He could die in our place for our sins. So that He could rise for our salvation. So that He could ascend into heaven and pour out the Spirit upon us. So that by the Spirit's work, people would be convicted of their sin and would call out to Jesus and believe and be saved. That's what God wants. If you think, well, He doesn't want me. He doesn't want... Yes, He does. He wants you to call upon Him. So we are living in the last days. But that should not frighten us. The last days are good days. Days of fulfillment. Hard days? Yes. Is there darkness in the last days? Yes. But there is also light, glory. These are days when the Spirit has been poured out on God's people. And these are also days of salvation. As, God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray.